podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading today comes from Nehemiah chapter 13. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. Wasn't it just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? Now you are bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated this way. It's the word of God. Thanks be to God. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for this amazing love. Thank you for uh, this anthem. Um, An anthem that uh, we get to claim as our own. No condemnation now we dread. Bold we approach the eternal throne. Wow. Lord, I pray that these, the, the, the words of this song... Um, wouldn't just hang in the air, but Lord, that, that you would let them um, find a home in our hearts today. We might find ourselves humming the tune throughout the week, and maybe even finding a hymnal and looking the words up again and living through it and just letting it root deep. For God, if we can be a people of amazing love, your amazing love, wow, the world, world doesn't stand a chance. Blow on us, O oh, Holy Spirit, and, and do as you see fit. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. And it's to you that we give all praise and thanks and adoration. In the name of Jesus, we offer this prayer. And everyone who agreed with it said, Amen. Uh, I've come across uh, a reality this week that I think many of you will share. Life with a toddler is never boring. <laughs> uh, I mentioned last week that, uh, that uh, our toddler is, is toilet training and is on this journey, and praise be, that continues to go really well. Um, but in that realization this last week, um, uh, something else kind of started to, to churn with me, and that's... Um, a toddler now is very different than it was having a toddler, uh, well, many years ago. Let's put it that way. Um, let's see, the first time, Alex and, and TJ were very close in their age, and so it was like we had toddlers for like six years, all at the same time, just continual. Um, and the first time was an adventure and a half, um, and we didn't know if we were coming or going most of the time. But this time, uh, this time we, and by we, I mean me, I'm a bit older and therefore, I'm a bit slower, and I'm a bit more lenient, and I'm a, and I'm a lot more tired. 
Um, Ollie has a lot of really fun games that he loves to share with us that just keep us in stitches. And his little personality is just bubbling up like crazy. He is a, such a fun kid. But in that funness, he is also learning something about boundaries. Remember those moments? Uh, Joy has introduced uh, our sweet Ollie to the timeout chair, and Ollie don't like timeout. <laughs> and one of his games, one of his fun things to do is to climb up on the back of the couch to get up on the headrest. And he already knows this is a bad idea. This is not a good game. And he knows that he is going to be told no. He knows that he could get a timeout when he does this. Now, Ollie prefers to play this game not when you're sitting next to him on the couch, but when you're in another part of the room, like in the kitchen. And so he can climb up there and enjoy her. I will say, Ollie, no. And he will climb back down. And then guess what he will do? He will scurry back up. And um, he does this over and over again. Now, in, in our family, we have something that I've inherited from my mom. It's called the look. Some of you are giggling because you know the look. Um, the older boys know the look. In fact, when I was a youth pastor, my kids in the youth program, they knew the look. Um, it's the look that it's the universal signal that says you better knock it off right now. Now, Ollie has experienced that look. He decided to climb up on the back of the couch, get up to the headrest, and I said, Ollie, please don't get down, to which he did it first, then he did it again. On the third time, I shot him the look. And do you know what that stinker did? He smiled, he laughed, and he said, silly daddy. Son, let me tell you. I got to thinking about Ollie's response to the look, and I wondered really out loud this week, why do we do things and seem to laugh while doing them, knowing full well that it's going to cause us trouble? I'm not a toddler anymore, but I act like it a lot. <laughs> I can be just as childish, and I've been around you, so have you, so can you. <laughs> we all can, right? We all find our ways to climb up on the back of couches knowing full well that we're going to get the look, knowing full well that it's not what we're supposed to be doing. And yet, this is like this natural reaction, natural action for us, for many of us. Why, in those moments when I think about this, I often open my scriptures and I think, why can't I just be like the people in this book? They didn't have this problem, right? Right. Um. If you're going to create a religion today and you were going to give it a great backstory and, and you were going to give people that were superheroes and you, you wouldn't choose the people that are in our, our Bible, a bunch of whiners who, who mess up more than they succeed. And, and yet over and over again, we see these people of God who are given so very much acting like toddlers, climbing up on the back of cushions. And I read over their stories and I think, good grief, what's wrong with these people? Why couldn't they just get it together? And I know deep in my heart, I'm one of those folks. I'm one of the whiners in the wilderness. I'm one of those short-sighted individuals who forget God's work in my life. I'm a worrier who regularly puts the emphasis on all the other stuff instead of on what really matters. I don't know if you've noticed this morning, but with all of the stuff that's going on in General Conference, I told Janelle, the music that we have sang today, together this morning has invited us to stop worrying. 
God is good. No matter what. And we've been spending time with Ezra and Nehemiah and these, these books that in our, in our Bible are two and the Hebrew were one. They tell this great, three great movements of restoration of the Israelites from exile. And, and Israel was placed in that position because they had routinely chosen to climb up on the back of the cushion and laugh at God. And laugh at God when God had given them more than they could ever have imagined. They had been given absolutely everything. They had been given favor and wealth and a land that when they came in for the conquest, they didn't even need to cultivate. And for years, the story of Israel is like a, a fan vacillating back and forth, left and right between righteousness and wickedness over and over again. And then they go into exile as a result. And they're there for 70 years. And they come home and once again, they're given everything. Everything they need to live faithfully. And these three great stories we learn, guys like Zerubbabel who comes and rebuilds the temple and, and Ezra who reestablishes the law of God and Nehemiah who restores the walls of Jerusalem. And each time that the work is finished, there's this celebration, there's this renewal, there's this, yes, we got it, kind of, that happens. Remember last week we heard about Israel having these grand parties that last for days and they take these giant offerings and they pay off debt and, and they release God's people to do what they were called to do to bless those around them. And at some point after the second celebration, Nehemiah is recalled to give an account to, to the king. Remember he is serving under King Artaxerxes of Persia. And the scripture tells us that Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, he travels to Babylon. Now, the capital of the Persian Empire was Susa. So what we can learn from that is the king is coming and is doing rounds of his kingdom. He's in Babylon. He meets the king, and Nehemiah must have known that he was going to be with him for some period of time because he leaves his brother in charge. He leaves his brother in charge of, of Jerusalem. And, and he goes, and at some point, depending on when you, you kind of time the, the books out, could be two years, could be four years, Nehemiah asked for permission to go back, to go back and to govern and to, to lead his people. And it's granted, and Nehemiah, I can just imagine, getting back into the, the, the chariot to come back, he must have been so excited to see what kind of progress his people had made. I, I told Todd not too long ago, he wasn't allowed to come out to Andover until next Sunday. And actually, I want him, when he comes with Susan next week, to not come up Todd's Road, but to come up Polo Club so he can see. And the anticipation is he said, I can't wait to come and see. I said, you're going to cry. He goes, I know, shut up. <laughs> and Nehemiah must have felt the same thing as he, he's coming. His spirit's so excited. And when he gets there, what we learn in this final chapter of the book of Nehemiah is that it, wow, it didn't turn out so well. In fact, what we have are four encounters that cause this governor to end this book with a cry. He literally pulls his hair out in frustration. The book of Nehemiah ends with a prayer that sounds like desperation, actually. The first thing that we, we, we find Nehemiah having to deal with is this priest by the name of Eliashib. He is the high priest of the people at the time. And Eliashib has done something just mind-altering, he has decided that he's going to rent out part of the temple to a guy by the name of Tobiah. 
If you recall, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we meet Tobiah. He is one of the people who's standing on the outskirts, making fun of jeering and threatening as they're rebuilding the walls. This is an enemy of what God is doing. And the high priest is giving him storeroom, like some um, all-purpose, all-climate storage facility. And what's occurring is um, because the storage is being used, the Levites and the priests don't have what they need in order to do the work of the temple. Things are slowing down. Stuff is not happening. And, and, and I picture Nehemiah walking in and seeing this, and Scripture says he tosses it out. It's like he's someone who's just caught his spouse cheating, and he's up at the top of the window chucking it out the window, getting rid and clearing the space. Now, as a result of the lack of resources in the temple, Nehemiah realizes that the Levites not only are not doing their work, but they've left. They've left the temple. I mean, they've got to eat. They've got to be cared for. So they're going to their crops. They're working the fields. And Nehemiah calls them back and he says, we have failed you. Come back. Do your duties. And he tells the people of Judah, the nobles particularly, get with it. He tells them, bring in your full tithe. Quit playing around. Bring in your full time. Help us run the temple of the Lord. Help us do what needs to be be done. Nehemiah even sets up jobs to see that the work is done correctly. It'd be like me saying, okay, church, bring in your tithe. I'm going to have Mark stand back there and make sure everybody's bringing in 10%. Yeah, that'd go over well, wouldn't it? Nehemiah does this. Second, Nehemiah steps out of his residence on a beautiful Sabbath morning. I'm imagining it's that. A Sabbath rest day. And he sees his beloved Jerusalem turning into Fayette Mall. There's a market in the streets and the people are working and they're stomping on grapes and the wine presses and they've got foreigners walking around selling fish, goods and foods to the people. And what's they're supposed to, what are they supposed to be doing on the Sabbath? being still, being quiet, worshiping the Lord, resting. Nehemiah loses his mind this time, and he yells at the nobles, who must have been making money off of all of this. And then he bars the doors on on, on Sabbath night. On Friday night, he shuts the doors to Jerusalem. No one's coming in, no one's getting out until the Sabbath is over. He posts guards to arrest anybody who tries to come in and sell stuff on the Sabbath. Then he tells the the priests and the Levites to purify themselves. He says to them, get it together, y'all. I mean, seen the news this week. Uh, The the Pope has gathered all the bishops to discuss uh, the tragedy that is occurring in the Catholic Church. Did anybody see the, the little nun? This little nun from Africa gets up and she lays into the Pope and the bishop and calls them a bunch of hypocrites. So you go, girl. Then I thought, oh, I hope she didn't come here. (laughs) Nehemiah tells the priests and Levites, get it together. You're the people of God. Act like it. Third, he notices that some of the men of Judah have returned to an old practice. They're marrying foreign women who are bringing their gods into the marriage, and and the children aren't being taught the stories of God, let alone the language of their people. And Nehemiah again confronts, and pulling his hair out frustration and anger, and he makes them swear that they won't do the same things as the people in the past, the things that got them into this place the the first time. And finally, he he notices that that same priest, Eliashib, who rented out the space to the temple, he's also allowed his son, 
a priest in waiting to marry the daughter of Sanballat. Now, Sanballat was one of the other enemies who was jeering and causing problems. An enemy of God. You remember him? He's the guy that caused the Jews so much problem that when Nehemiah was trying to get the wall built in the first place, he had to have people build with one hand and a sword in the other. Public enemy number one. And the high priest has decided to marry into that family. It's more than Nehemiah can take. He actually banishes the high priest's son from Jerusalem. I call that turbo ticked. He is not happy. Last week I mentioned that when you read Nehemiah, you get the sense that it is this personal reflection like a journal. And in every one of these interactions that Nehemiah has, he records a prayer. And all four of them start out with the same word, remember. It's interesting that the people of God, even to this day, we are called regularly to remember. The first prayer, remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. The second, remember this good deed also, O my God, have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. The third prayer uh, turns from focus on Nehemiah to the people. Remember them, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and the Levites. And by the time you get to the fourth prayer, Nehemiah is just out of words and he just goes, remember this in my favor. It's as if he's seen the story played out so many times that he's tried so many times that he has just recounted the blessings and the lessons to God over and over again that he finally gets done. He just says, I'm done. God, I tried. This last prayer is the final phrase of the entire book. And as I've read the book, I hear this exasperated servant of God who has tried to help this nation of toddlers stop crawling up on the back of the couch over and over again, only to receive a smile and another climb to the top. He just goes, ugh. Anybody ever been there? I thought Nehemiah was a pretty epic leader before. Now I really love the guy. I mean, who hasn't been in that place frustrated beyond words when people just won't do what they're supposed to do? I bet everybody here has had at one point a coworker or a family member or a sports team not do what you wanted them to do. My friend Jeff Bramwell, who's down at Stanford, he apologized recently on Facebook to his neighbors because he was screaming at the game, trying to get Coach Cal to do what he wanted him to do, and Coach Cal wasn't doing it. (laughs) I told Jeff, you need to relax, brother. (laughs) We've all been there, right? To share some kind of word and over and over again, the same dumb behaviors occur over to the thing that got us there. In this series, we've looked at this renovation project uh, uh, that, that Israel was doing, a temple that even had a 16-year work stoppage, a, a project of the law being recovered that uncovered this great diluting of God's message to his people, a wall that provided security and stability in a Wild West kind of setting. And all three of these projects seem to be God-ordained financed, encouraged, backed. All of them needed to be done, but not a single one of them results in a changed people. It's a very telling thing. There were short-lived parties or celebrations. They take that huge offering, yay. But not a single one of these moments contained something that the Hebrew people were hoping for, and that's that the glory of the Lord had fallen. 
that the glory of the Lord had rested upon their work. Not a single time in Ezra or Nehemiah does that occur. Ezra's project starts out with hope. Nehemiah, Zerubbabel's project starts out with hope. Nehemiah's project starts, and each one ends in disappointment. So I have to ask, why are these books here? What is this story that we're, we're supposed to be able to see? I think it has something to do with the words of contemporary prophets. Prophets who were speaking at the same time. Prophets who said that there's going to come a day when all the tribes and all the nations will come together to worship and to participate in the kingdom of God. Or the words of Micah who says that intermarrying folks is a, is a bad choice of other religions, but a greater poor choice is divorce and bitter hearts. Micah says that. Zechariah would say that there's going to be a day where the new city of God will not need walls. It would welcome all the nations. Ezra and Nehemiah show us that these great renovations, even the ones that have really great worship services and huge offerings, they pale in comparison to the renovation that God longs to do in the heart. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah saw their work ignored and forgotten. And it's the call of Ezekiel and Jeremiah who would say there's coming a day when God would renew his people and he would put upon his people not a a work of stone, but a work of deep rebirth. He would put his law, his spirits in their hearts. Now, why is this important? Because we're an Easter people, right? Yeah, that's an easy answer. If I say we're an Easter people, you just go, yes, we're an Easter people. We're an after Pentecost people. The new law, the new uh, command of God has been written on the people who claim Jesus as their Lord on our hearts. I I would venture to guess that everybody in this room who's hearing my voice this morning has at some point had an encounter with God. You have said yes. You have said, ooh, I want to be a part of that. There's something that's drawn you. Thanks be to God. That is a good thing. But God is interested in doing a further work of renovation in your heart. He loves you exactly the way you are, but he's not content to let you stay there. We have done a lot of work the last, not just six months, but the last several years preparing this this renovation project here at Andover. And if we look at this and we go, yay, brick and mortar, We've built it. Here they come. We're in for a rude awakening because God is not interested in that. It's important. It has to be done. But what God is really engaged in is inviting us to have a renovation of our heart. A heart that says that we're going to allow the spirit to rest right here in our hearts, to to challenge our minds, to to change what what comes out of our mouths, to, to use these hands and these feet. God has invited us to do this kind of thing, to have that kind of renovation. Or, and if we don't, then what we've really done is wasted a lot of time and a lot of money. And so, Andover, beloved of God, I'm inviting you this morning to do some homework this week. Next Sunday, we're going to have a party. It's going to be a consecration. It's going to be a lot of words that are going to be shared. We're going to sing. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be excellent. We're going to remember God's move. But before that, I'm going to invite you to take, some op- take an opportunity this week to remember. 
whether it's a song like In Can It Be, sung in the tune in our head, to take an opportunity to say, all right, Lord, you've done this work, we've endured, we've gone through it, but what about the renovation here? How has that gone? I want to invite you to take time this week to just go, Lord, what do you need to do here to prepare me for what's yet to come? There is a great future in front of us at Andover. But it starts with what we will choose to allow God to renovate in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we thank you for the stories that we have explored the last four weeks. We thank you for Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and for their faithfulness, their willingness and their, their longing to follow after you, even when they got it wrong. Lord, we're, we're thankful for the story of um, crawling up on couches that we read over and over again in Scripture and how that it reminds us that, that we're just like it, that you love them and you love us. And we're thankful, Lord, that, that you've invited us to do more than just have a renovation of, uh, that's a construction project. You've invited us to have a renovation, a, a change of heart, a, a, a longing to see your kingdom come that is so incredible and such, such a part of your heart for us that, that I, would, I would dare say it's the longing of heaven for us. And so, Lord, I pray this week for each and every... Um, ear who is hearing these words that, that at some point, maybe multiple times, you would nudge us and we would do a check-in. That we would say, Lord, how is it with our heart? What are you longing for me? How do you want me to be about your love in a greater way? Lord, call us to divine appointments this week as we prepare for a celebration next. Write your love and your, your, your law upon our hearts, we pray. And give us all we need from the Holy Spirit to do it. We love you and we give you thanks for it is the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we offer this prayer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.